you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 114. Psalm 114. I was struck today as we were singing our song of joy. We come, O Christ, to you. This line verse at the end it says, In you, that is in Christ, in you we rest, sure answer to our every As you know, that has been our theme for these last couple months, and the title of this sermon series is it is the quest for life in the Psalms, and each week we've looked at something that our hearts desire, whether it's a quest for wisdom or for blessing or for answers or for deliverance or for justice. So today, the quest for a hero. We had the quest for a king. All of these things that we, by nature, as human beings, long for in this world, all of these are good things that we seek after. And I was reminded in this song what has been the, uh, sometimes the subtext, sometimes the explicit mention in all these sermons that the answer to our every quest is in Christ alone. All of these things we seek for, we find all of our answers in Christ. And today, as we look at Psalm 114, I call it the quest for a hero, celebrating the heroic deeds of our God. This is something that our hearts long for. Our hearts long for these things. We have only to look at, at the movie theaters to see how many big movies, big productions focus on heroes, even superheroes. We love these stories. And we have today the quest for a hero here focusing on God and on Christ. Before I read the text, I want you to hear what Charles Spurgeon said about Psalm 114. True poetry has here reached its climax. No human mind has ever been able to equal much less to excel the grandeur of this psalm. God is spoken of as leading forth his people from Egypt to Canaan and causing the whole earth to be moved at his coming. Things inanimate are represented as imitating the actions of living things when the Lord passes by. The God of Jacob is exalted as having command over river, sea, and mountain and causing all nature to pay homage and tribute before his glorious majesty. We might quibble about whether this is, in fact, the greatest poem ever written with Spurgeon, but he certainly has a point. Poetry here has reached its climax to celebrate the glorious majesty of God. So with that introduction, will you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? This is the word of the Lord given to us in Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. Will you join me in praying one more time? Heavenly Father, this is your word to us, your people. We pray that you will send your spirit to write it on our hearts that we may treasure it as it ought to be treasured, that we might gain wisdom through it, that we might cling to it, learn to live by it, and to trust you for it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. 
Amen. Please be seated. It was about one year ago now, a little more just before the beginning of the 2013 baseball season, that Mariano Rivera announced that he would be retiring from baseball at the end of the year. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Mariano Rivera was the closer for the Yankees. He was their relief pitcher who they would bring in in the ninth inning of a game where they had the lead by a couple runs. They would bring him in to pitch the ninth inning to make sure that the other team did not score any runs and take the lead and, and let the Yankees lose. Not only was he their closer, but he was, as is universally acknowledged, the greatest closing pitcher in all of baseball. For 17 years, he was their hero who came in at the end of the game. Mariano Rivera is the all-time career leader for saves, games finished, adjusted ERA, postseason ERA, postseason saves, number of seasons with at least 30 saves, number of seasons with at least 35 saves, number of seasons with at least 40 saves, and 50 saves. He was 13 times an all-star, five times a World Series champion, and is a certain lock for the Hall of Fame when he becomes eligible in four more years. Uh, Many hitters who would have a favorite bat that they preferred to use would refuse to use their favorite bat when they were facing Rivera because his legendary cut fastball was so well known for breaking hitters' bats that they would use their practice bat or something less valuable than their favorite bat when they were facing him. It was just known that any time the Yankees went into the ninth inning and they had the lead, that you would hear those iconic opening notes of Enter Sandman, his, his classic song, and you would see the doors of the bullpen swing open, and you'd see Rivera begin to jog through the outfield towards the mound. And, and as those million-watt speakers thumped out Enter Sandman, the whole stadium was rocking, and the hearts of the enemies turned to wax and melted because they knew what was coming. And all the hearts of the Yankees fans were emboldened and encouraged and took joy to see their hero come in. Perhaps this is a little bit dramatic, but the entire season last year turned into Rivera's farewell tour throughout baseball because they knew it was his final season. And so every team at every stadium would present him with gifts and honors, would have something to recognize him. There were documentaries and and magazine features. Michael Bloomberg declared September 22nd Mariano Rivera Day in New York City. But at the same time, as we could clearly see all of his heroic feats, there was an article that came out in Sports Illustrated that showed he was not just an athletic hero, but he was also a genuinely good guy. Rivera was a, a Christian, and he devoted much of his time to charitable and humanitarian efforts. He began schools in Panama, his native country. He funded church plants throughout Latin America and the United States. Uh, he was very generous with his baseball knowledge. He built a career on one pitch that he threw, and the article said he would gladly teach anyone who asked how to throw his pitch. Even pitchers for the opposing teams, if they asked, he would teach them how to throw his cut fastball. He was not only a great baseball player, a heroic pitcher, but he was a good guy. They celebrated last year all of Mariano Rivera, his glory and his goodness. And of course, that's hyperbole when we speak of Rivera. But what Psalm 114 does for God is to celebrate his deeds, to celebrate his glory, all of his heroic acts, but also to celebrate his goodness, 
that, he, that he's glorious in what he accomplishes. He's the hero who comes in in battle and encourages the hearts of his people. But he's also kind, gentle, good, and tender. This is Psalm 114. It shows us his glory, and it shows us his goodness. The glory of God is on display as we, we read Psalm 114. We can see as we read it, there's a number of specific historical events that are described in this psalm. Uh, the big picture that it gives us is a, a big picture description of the exodus from Egypt as God saved his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And, and along the way, it mentions these various episodes. So in verse 1, we see the description of the exodus itself. It says, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. So we have the exodus, the salvation itself. Verse 2 says, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. This is probably referring to the dedication of the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus, when God's glory filled the tabernacle and they became his sanctuary. Verse 3, the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. We remember that during this march from, the, from Egypt to the promised land, Israel crossed two bodies of water miraculously. At the very beginning, they crossed the Red Sea, and at the very end, as they were leaving the wilderness, going into the Promised Land, they crossed the Jordan. And this verse refers to both of them. The sea looked and fled, also Jordan turned back. In verse 4, it mentions the mountains that are skipping like rams, and we'll come back to that, but what that might refer to is the giving of the law at Sinai, when Mount Sinai literally shook from the presence of God descending on the mountain. And then verse 8 refers to two events during those wilderness years when God took care of his people and provided for them water out of a rock. We remember there were two events when Israel grumbled and complained in the wilderness for their thirst, and God provided for them water from a rock. Both of those are mentioned. But, but this psalm is really not just a history lesson for us. It mentions all these events, these episodes that happened during the years, but it's not just a a history lesson to remind us, rather, this is a song of praise. It's a song of celebration. It's a song that is glorying in these events. It's not merely reminding us of them. It's glorying in them. It's lifting them up to celebrate them. It's really like the song that you would sing at a victory parade, where you sing a song in praise of the hero, recounting all of his uh, great deeds one by one. This might show my age a little bit, for better or for worse, but what it makes me think of is that song in Beauty of the Beast where they sing about Gaston, the hero, and all of his great deeds, where, where they say, no one hits like Gaston, matches wits like Gaston. In a spitting match, nobody spits like Gaston. They just recount all his deeds, and that's what this psalm does for God, to go through all of his exploits and lift them up and sing a song of praise to God for his glorious deeds. In that way, this psalm is a good model for us. It's a good model for us of how we also ought to be praising God. We shouldn't just remember his great deeds of redemption with a, a dry, dispassionate way. But we're to celebrate them. We're to glory in them. What does the confession say? We're to glorify God, to enjoy him, to lift up these, these events and to truly celebrate who God is and what he has done. Our praise should engage the emotions of our heart. It should engage us to, to draw out of us joy and exuberance. This, the word that comes to my mind when I read this psalm is exuberant. 
It's an exuberant song of praise for the glory of God. And if worship of God does not engage our emotions, perhaps we need to stop and ask why. Why does God's grace no longer strike us as amazing? Why does our redemption, when we think back on what God has done, on where he has rescued us from, giving us every blessing in the heavenly places, why does that not engage our minds and draw out our hearts in true praise to God? It's so easy for us to begin to take this for granted. It's so easy for us to begin to think that that we deserve this, that this is what we had coming, that, that God owed it to us, and so we lose our thankfulness, we lose our wonder, we lose that ability to, to raise a glass and to sing a song of celebration to God. Psalm 114 is helpful then to realign our hearts on this matter, to realign our hearts and to give us a sense of wonder for the glory of God. This is the only psalm that I know of that engages in trash talk. I know the the guys will follow me here, trash talk, when you're jawing with your opponents, pointing out your strengths and try to point out their flaws and weaknesses. This is the only psalm I know of that does that. It's, It's not the only place in the Bible that does it. But it's the only place in the Psalms that I know of where it literally engages in trash talk in verses 3 through 6 in the middle of the Psalm. Note the descriptions in verse 3. First he describes it. Verse 3, The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. If we looked back at at these two accounts of Israel crossing bodies of water in the wilderness, uh, if we looked back in Exodus and uh, Joshua and read those accounts there, They are described as miracles. There is no doubt that God was doing a supernatural work in these events, but but they're also described using some some natural terms. Right in Exodus, it says a great east wind came, and it blew all night, and it moved the water to dry the land so that there was a path. But in this psalm, when, when it looks back on that event, it doesn't look at the natural causes. It just refers to the glory of God as coming down and terrifying the water so that it fled that the sea looked and it saw the glory of God and it fled. The Jordan turned back. And, and so it describes it from the theological dimension. It sees the glory of God and it flees from it. It says the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. The imagery here is, is not familiar to us, but it, it describes this experience of watching a huge flock of lambs or rams running over a hillside. And perhaps they're lambs that are sort of bounding and jumping as they go. And the flock is so big covering the hillside that you look and it literally looks like the whole hill is just quaking, just shaking because there's so much movement in this flock of lambs. And he's describing here what it felt like to them in Exodus 19 when the Lord descends on Mount Sinai and the mountain quaked. And he's saying the the hills, They skipped the mountains like rams. We would say something like the mountains were quaking in their boots. But he would say it looked like they were skipping like lambs over the hills because the glory of God descended on these hills. And then verses 5 and 6, after he's described it, verses 5 and 6, just straight up trash talking the mountains and the sea. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. The psalmist is so caught up. The whole of his being is so caught up in the praise of the glory of God and his majesty, which causes the earth to tremble, 
that he challenges the very creation to recognize the glory of God, to recognize who he is and to do homage to his majesty. We see it also in Zechariah 4, when he says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you become a plain. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is writing about the resurrection of Jesus. And he's so caught up after 40 or some odd verses of describing the resurrection, he finally uh, where, O oh, death, is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? He begins to trash talk the grave and death. Say they have no power in light of who Christ is and what he has done. And then verse 7, he just speaks directly to the earth. Tremble, O oh, earth, at the presence of the Lord. Tremble, O oh, earth. He's been recounting all the great deeds of God, all his exploits in saving his people his greatness and his majesty in shaking the very earth, causing the water to flee. Tremble, O earth, at the greatness of God. This is just pure boasting in the Lord. The boasting of a man who's so utterly confident in the victory of the Lord. The victory of his hero. It's like we we remember Goliath going forth against David and Goliath is trash-talking. Who am I that you come against me with sticks? My dog. You know, he'll feed his body to the birds of the air. Goliath trash talks. This here is the psalmist so confident in the victory of his hero that he trash talks the very creation. That they flee in the presence of God. They cower before him. And those of us who are on God's team, we rejoice. And we're glad. Our hearts are emboldened. We see our hero coming in. And we rejoice and are encouraged because we know victory is sure now for us. Whereas the hearts of the enemies melt away in fear. And so this psalm just exuberantly portrays the glory of God in salvation for his people. But it's also a picture of his goodness. We've looked here at the middle of the psalm, these middle verses, 3 through 7. But we need to look at the beginning and the end. The middle celebrates the glory of God the beginning and the end of this psalm, put it in a context for us. And the context is God's salvation of his people. It's his goodness to his people. That God is not just a big cosmic bully who uses his glory to terrify the mountains and the seas and to cause water to turn back, but rather he's a tender God who loves his people and every display of God's glory is always for their benefit. It's always for our salvation. It's always for our provision. And he points out three aspects of God's goodness here. That, that God saves his people, that he dwells with his people, and that he provides for his people. Verse 1 says he saves his people. It's the salvation from Egypt. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. This is the setting of the psalm. Now, this is, this is the main context. It's celebrating God's work as a savior of his people that he redeemed his people. He brought them out of their slavery and he saved them. All the events that we mentioned, they're all part of God's salvation, his exodus of his people, bringing them into the promised land. As far as we know, this psalm was probably written sometime after the exile in Babylon, so maybe four or 500 B.C. And the poet here recognizes that God saved his people in the exodus. And now at exile, God has reprised that role and he's done it again. Again, he has brought his people out from a people who are of strange language. And so he celebrates. He looks back and says, this is who God is. This is what God does 
He is a God who saves his people. He is a God who redeems them. And he's asking us to remember, to celebrate the great acts of redemption, to look back both at at salvation and history past and at the acts of redemption in our own lives, to remember how God has saved us, to think, not to take these things for granted, but to, to intentionally take our minds back to when God saved us, to when he brought us out. We're so prone to take these things for granted you remember when you were among a people of strange language? That's the description here in verse 1. And, and we don't need to think simply, literally. But do you remember when you were unredeemed, enslaved to sin? And God graciously rescued you. God graciously brought you out. God graciously brought you to himself. This psalm is in the context of that, celebrating God's salvation, celebrating his works towards his people, celebrating his goodness. All these vivid pictures that we see of God's glory coming down, causing the mountains to quake, causing the seas to flee. It's that much more joyful for us because we understand that these things are being done by our hero, by our God, the one who loves us, who's on on our team, who's fighting for us. He caused the seas to flee for us, that we might be saved. That's why our hearts are glad in this song. Not only because we see the glory of God, but we see the glory of our God, who loves us and gave himself for us. This is what it feels like for for this psalmist to look back. It's an emotional psalm describing what it feels like for us. Do we remember how good it feels to have have the biggest guy in school be on your team? And just to boast in that. That's what this psalm is. It's it's Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? God who justifies. Who will condemn? I think he really wants us to try to answer the question. Who will condemn? Let them step forward because it's God who justifies. It's God who saves us. It's God who brings us out from the people of strange language. God saves his people. Second, in verse 2, we see that God also chooses to dwell with his people. In contrast to the ferocity of his majesty, which causes the mountains to quake, here we see in verse 2 that that he's also a tender God who lives among and dwells in the midst of his people. It says, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. That, That he is a God who saved his people in order that he might live with them. See, none of the other nations could say that. They had gods who lived in remote places, high on the tops of mountains in their temples where they were really quite inaccessible. Only Israel could say, our God lives among us. The middle of the camp. We are surrounded, surrounding him where he is. Our God dwells with us. It says, Judah became his sanctuary. This was God's purpose. Do you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may worship me. The purpose of God saving us, the purpose of God redeeming us is in order that we might be with God, that we might dwell with him and worship him, that he could be our dwelling place. The psalm is probably referring historically to, we already said, the dedication of the tabernacle there in the wilderness at Sinai, where God gave Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle and the people carried them out. And then in chapter 40 of Exodus, the glory of God descends and it fills the tabernacle with such glory that those who are ministering there couldn't, couldn't bear to look upon it. That's God dwelling with his people. But how much more, if that's the glory we see in Exodus, how much more for us today is this true? 
that God has saved us in order that he might dwell with us. That God's purpose in salvation is to draw you to himself, to pour his spirit into you, to dwell with you, to live together with us. That's how the book of Revelation pictures the the climax of the whole story is that God is preparing a place where he will be our God, we will be his people, we'll dwell together there forever in communion with God. There's a depth of, of relationship that's here. That it's not enough simply to sing this, this raucous bar song to our hero, but, but our hero is also our God who lives with us, who dwells among us, and who loves us. This God who, who terrifies the enemy. You see, he says in verse 7, Tremble, O earth. Well, we need not tremble because our God is fighting for us. He's a God who saves us, a God who dwells with us, and he's a God who provides for us. Down at verse 8. Just as the psalm has begun with with God's goodness, it comes back to it at the end. In verse 7, it's, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob. The the presence of God is so glorious and so majestic, so awe-inspiring that it comes down and the earth trembles. And yet, for us, for God's chosen people, it's verse 8. Because God turns a rock into a pool of water. He miraculously provides for the needs of his people. We remember these incidents. That God has brought his people out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, and, and it's almost the next day, or right thereabout, that the people are thirsty in the desert. And what do they do? They grumble and complain and, and whine against God. Have you brought us out here in the wilderness to die of thirst? So shortly after the miracle at the Red Sea, have they forgot God's power and God's ability to provide? Already they grumble, and what does God do? He provides for them miraculously, water out of a rock. No wonder God is one who is to be feared. He can provide water for his people. I wonder what needs we have today that cause us to worry. I wonder what needs we have in our lives that are tempting us to grumble, that are tempting us to complain, that are tempting us to take our eyes off of God, off of his provision for us, off of his goodness to us. Like Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We read of the Israelites in the wilderness, and we we laugh and we scoff at them. Oh, silly Israelites, how quick they were to forget. How quick I am to forget. How quick we are to forget the deeds that God has done for us. And he says, he is the God who provides. He didn't spare his only son. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, all of our anxieties? Are they not usually a product of our forgetfulness? Are they not a product of our spiritual amnesia? That we forget what God has done for us. We forget who he has made us to be. Sons and daughters of him. Brothers and sisters of Christ. Children in his family, welcomed around his table and yet we fret over whether or not he will provide for his children. The psalm says, he turns the rock into a pool of water. He turns a rock into a pool of water. Now, we read a psalm like this, and I know that some of us may get discouraged because we feel that our life does not feel like this. This psalm is exuberant. It's this glorious celebration 
Oh, Israel just went from glory to glory. God took care of them every step of the way. Why isn't my life like that? Well, Derek Kidner helpfully reminds us in his commentary that this was not what life felt like for Egypt or for Israel either. We remember Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Most of that 40 years was filled with grumbling and complaining, rebelling, sinning, fighting, fear, wandering. And every now and then there was this story of the great glory of God breaking through in their life, providing for them. He'd split the rock open. He'd move the sea out of the way. He'd come down in great glory on the mountain. But that's not what life felt like for most of the time. And for most of us would say that's more like what our life feels like. It's this wandering. It's this lengthy period. There's, there's these little glimpses that we get of God's glory breaking in. But overall, it's long periods of wandering. Long periods of fear and wondering. What we see in Psalm 114 is a reflection on Israel's experience from heaven's perspective. It's heaven's perspective looking back on the corporate life of Israel and saying, when I look back, I don't see all the fear and the wandering anymore. I just see the glory of God working in every situation to glorify himself, to save his people, to dwell in their midst, provide for their needs, that's what stands out. That's what stands out. This whole thing is a monument to God's grace and his glory, what he has done in the lives of his people. It's as though the sins of Israel are remembered no more. They're not even worth a mention in this psalm. It's just the glory of God and the goodness of God, taking all of their praise. It's just like in a couple years, at Mariano Rivera's Hall of Fame celebration, they won't remember all the batters he walked, the home runs he gave up, the saves he blew. Those won't be remembered. They'll celebrate his great deeds. And when we get to see heaven's perspective on, on our life on that great day, all of our sins will be remembered no more. All of our fears will be covered by the blood of Christ. We'll look back on our lives with heaven's perspective and simply see the glory of God and the goodness of God, saving us from our sins, choosing to dwell with us in the midst of our lives, providing for our every needs as though he were bringing water out of a rock to fulfill our needs, even when he's doing it in response to our grumbling. That will be a great day. That will be a great day. All of our sins will be remembered no more, and we will see nothing but God's glory in our lives. Heaven's perspective. And so Psalm 114 says, look at your lives today. Look at your lives today. See the glory of God and meditate on the goodness of God, caring for us and loving us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for you are good and your goodness endures forever. You are great and greatly to be praised. And so, Father, we ask that you will send your spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith, to guide us in our thinking, to aid us in our remembering, that we may look with the eyes of faith and see even in our lives your goodness at work in our salvation, your glory at work for our good. Father, we pray that we will not be a forgetful people, but that we will be a remembering people who See the acts of God and who praise you and give you thanks for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. 
in the name of Christ and for his sake that we pray. Amen.